Interested in investing but don't know where to begin? A great place to start is Bank of Ireland's new webinar series, Invested. You can learn about investing with live webinars, guides and insights from industry experts. We know you've worked hard for your money and with our expert support, it can work harder for you. So don't rest it, invest it. Visit bankofireland.com invested. Bank of Ireland, begin. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is a tied agent of New Ireland Assurance Company PLC trading as Bank of Ireland Life for Life Assurance and Pensions Business. Members of Bank of Ireland Group. Bank of Ireland Trading as Bank of Ireland Insurance and Investments is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, from refugee children falling asleep for months or people having memory loss after hearing strange noises in the night, there still remain some pretty remarkable diagnostic mysteries of the 21st century. But what unites some of them is that they are perhaps examples of a particular type of psychosomatic illness, medical disorders that are influenced as much by the aspects of culture, memory and shared experience as they are by human biology. So what are these illnesses? How do they happen? And how do we treat them? Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan is a neurologist and author of The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness. She joins me now. Welcome to the program, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Um, This is such a fascinating area because on the one hand, there are people um, in all different parts of the world, doesn't matter the country, doesn't matter the culture, who experience these very real symptoms. And then uh, on the other hand, the, the the reason for why they experience them is, is is sometimes very unclear. Perhaps it might be best to start off with a, an anecdote where you can tell me a little bit about um, what we're talking about. So, so tell me about these um, sleeping beauties. What, what was this case? Yeah, so this is a story that I happened upon in the news in about 2017 under a headline that said Sweden's Mystery Illness. And it referred to a very large group of children in Sweden who had fallen into what was being referred to as a sort of mystery coma. So what happened to these children, and some of them were as young as seven, some of them were as old as 18, is that they gradually withdrew from society, first becoming sort of listless and apathetic. And then slowly they took to their beds and this evolved into a state in which these children lay in bed, sometimes for months or even years at a time, not opening their eyes, not speaking, not eating, being kept alive with feeding tubes and physiotherapy. And this illness affected a very specific group of children. So when it began, it was exclusively in Sweden, but it actually affected children who were seeking asylum in Sweden. So children who had traveled to Sweden as sort of forced immigrants. And when facing deportation, they fell into this state, which came to be known as a resignation syndrome. And it affected hundreds of children between 2005 and recently. Uh, The kind of underpinnings biologically of it really are very poorly understood. And it's not there is no precedent for it elsewhere in the world. One um, a sad and I suppose absolutely bizarre story in a way. I don't know what, what else to call it. So these refugee children received letters saying that their application for refugee status was rejected. And upon receiving this information, these symptoms would start sometimes leaving, leading to, to a, a year-long comas. Like that is an extraordinary reaction. Um, it, it, did it happen to any children who weren't being rejected? Did it happen to children who had been approved? Were there exceptions mm-hmm. to, to this rule? 
No, I mean, and that was what was um, most important about it is that it, it was occurring to children, a very specific group of children. So always children from asylum seeking families, always children with difficult backgrounds and always children who were facing deportation because their applications for asylum had been rejected. And even more than that, the children came from quite small geographical areas and small ethnic groups. You know, they, they weren't asylum seekers from anywhere in the world. They were very often from regions like Syria um, and from small groups like Yazidis or Uyghur Muslims. So there were a very, very specific group of children were affected by this disorder. So, so the first question obviously um, that comes to my mind is, did these children hear about other children having this disease? Uh, and, and is it thought that they had any control over what was happening to them? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you remark on that being the first question that came to your mind, because certainly, you know, I would also think along those lines. But what was very interesting, I think, is I visited these children in Sweden. I'm a neurologist interested in these sorts of comas. And, you know, the discussion surrounding these children, in the original newspaper article was very much about sort of brain mechanisms. How does the brain do this? What's happening biologically? And similarly, when I went to Sweden, you know, that was the only thing that people wanted to discuss is what is the neurobiology of this? Mm. But you're quite rightly highlighting the fact that these are children from a very specific group. And I would say that one has to assume that they had heard about this before and that this, you know, not necessarily the first, very first child who was affected, but you know, when somebody has an individual illness, that that's something inherent to them. But the subsequent children affected, one would have to assume that it had entered the narrative of the community that this mm. happens. But I wouldn't then make the leap, as I think some people do, to thinking, well, therefore, they know about it and they're doing it on purpose. Mm. Because the truth is that physical symptoms that develop into illness, you know, they can spread through ideas at an unconscious level. So if you know that a certain illness is within your community, you can begin expressing those symptoms um, just through looking for them or just through being worried about them, or you can inadvertently play out the trajectory of an illness because if you're in a certain situation and you expect it to affect you in a certain way, it can affect you in that way. And we've all experienced that. You know, you take a tablet, you think it'll give you certain side effects, you start looking out for those side effects, you get those side effects. So this is part of human nature. So I do believe these children were at some level aware of this, but I do not believe that that implies that they did anything purposefully. There's some really interesting and and solid evidence of this so-called nocebo effect that you're referring to, that um, rather than getting a placebo effect from a sugar pill, that if you are expecting um, a, a negative effect, that 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 is often experienced by some and, and the mechanism by which our brains um, process that expectation mm -hmm. in, into biological symptoms isn't fully understood. Am I right in, in saying that? Yeah, I would say that it's not fully understood. I would say that many people, you know, most people are now familiar with the placebo effect. And the, although we don't understand it, we, we accept the reality of it. I think people are still struggling with this nocebo, the opposite effect. But I would say that, you know, there's, for the things we struggle to understand, there's evidence in our daily lives of these things all the time. I mean, we've just come through a pandemic. I cannot be the only person who at the beginning of that pandemic thought I had contracted COVID, you know, six or seven <laughs> times and checked my own temperature yeah. compulsively yeah. And, and hadn't. You know, so the idea that you might be 
sort of have been exposed to something and might develop an illness is enough to make you develop symptoms. Indeed. Um, Before we go into uh, sort of teasing apart um, this mass psychogenic illness or functional neurological disorders, as as you term them, uh, I I wanted to hear the story of the Nicaraguans, um, because this is a, 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 a very dissimilar story, but just as fascinating in a way. Yes, so there's this fascinating illness in Nicaragua, which is only within a specific group of people in Nicaragua, again, little like the children in Sweden, it only affects people who belong to the Mosquito people, who are indigenous people of Nicaragua who live on the Mosquito coast. And this condition is referred to um, locally as greasy sickness, and it manifests as sort of frenetic seizures. And the people who are affected by it, they get very, very bad convulsive seizures. They have to be pinned down by their families. They're said to do strange things like put glass in their mouth, for example. And if the family don't hold them down, they fear that they'll run into the jungle and that they'll get lost and they'll never be found. And, you know, family members say that, you know, it it often affects teenagers and that that teenager has to be held down by several people because they develop super strength, uh, that uh, that they're unnaturally strong and that their behavior is absolutely unnatural during this. And this condition is exclusive to these particular people. And it occurs in outbursts. It has many parallels with the young people in Sweden in the sense that it spreads from person to person. It's exclusive to a single group of people and therefore is referred to medically as a culture bound syndrome. It only is heard of within a particular culture. Mm. And and uh, I suppose that is your first red flag that this might be a functional neurological disease because or disorder because of the fact that it's culturally specific, um, uh, even though the biology of of uh, people in Nicaragua is, is not very different to the biology of, yeah. of people in, in, in Ireland, for example. Yeah. So how hard is it then to diagnose something like this? Well, it's actually not very difficult to diagnose a, a functional or psychosomatic illness because they tend not to obey the rules of biology. So if you take the group of children in Sweden, you know, you can see that this sort of profound coma, it doesn't make biological sense because it flies in the face of the fact that their brain waves are normal and that their their biological tested parameters are completely normal. So they're both completely unresponsive, but their brain tests are saying they're awake. And similarly in Nicaragua, the types of seizures that these people have and the fact that they're contagious and can be spread by word of mouth from one person to another doesn't fit with biology. Yeah. And I would, I would also go as far as to say that, um, you know, these disorders aren't actually as unusual as they sound either, because in the average neurology clinic, we do see these types of symptoms all the time. But what's interesting to me, I suppose, is that in different cultures, we're calling them different things and giving them attri- different attributions according to our belief systems. And that's mm. why they behave a bit differently. Is, is it difficult to to get medical personnel um, such as doctors or clinicians or or the patient's families themselves to accept a diagnosis of this sort of mass psychogenic illness? I would say doctors, no. Um, I would say that, you know, a, a very large proportion, most doctors work. I'm a neurologist and these sort of symptoms that come more out of the, the kind of psychological part of the brain than than the pathology than pathology in the brain are really common. But also to any sort of doctor, you know, psychosomatic symptoms are really common. I think doctors recognize them but struggle to manage them. However, 
when it comes to telling somebody mm. that their very profound disability has more of a psychological cause than a pathological cause, that's an extremely difficult thing to do because immediately people feel like their suffering is being downgraded. The important point is for me to my patients is to say that, you know, if you're having seizures, whether they have a, a psychological or, or a pathological cause, their seizures, their disabling this should not be happening. But people don't really receive the news that way because there's a popular sort of misconception that disorders of the mind are somehow less serious or less disabling than other sorts of medical disorders. Whereas I would say that they can be several times more disabling and, and more more difficult to live with because they're harder for people to understand. I'm thinking now of um, extreme religious communities. Well, I suppose I would call them extreme in America. They're perhaps not as extremely um, viewed, but um, where people uh, say they experience a, uh, a possession by God or um, experience being touched by God. They have uh, sort of um, tremors and seizures uh, in church. And even some pastors uh, regularly claim to to heal people by uh, using the you know the power of God through them as a vessel, mm-hmm. and this sounds very similar to to what you're talking about, trying to induce uh, this sort of um, a functional neurological disorder or relieve one. Has there been any um, work, or did you look into that in your book, that the, the sort of um, crossover between um, hysteria in 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 cultures and hysteria in religion? Well, I haven't looked into that, but I do think these things are related. Of course, something doesn't become a disorder until it disables you. So, yeah. you know, but I think that, the, you know, the um, the sort of underpinnings, the psychological underpinnings for why these things happen are similar because they happen because of our expectations and because we're told a compelling story. You know, if you're told a very compelling story that in this situation you'll get sick in this way and this is how it will evolve, you can, through the way that the brain works, inadvertently sort of play out that sort of expectation in that narrative. And something that's happening within a religious community is is a similar sort of brain process, really, as to what's happening if you believe something will make you sick. And it was quite interesting for me, actually, as I kind of traveled around the world visiting people who had similar sorts of things, comas and seizures, you know, the mosquito people of Nicaragua attributed what was happening to them as being due to spirits. I see patients with very, very similar seizures, you know, in London where I work and their attributions are different. Their attributions will be biological. And or simply, 5G. Exactly. Um, or COVID, if that happens to be prevalent. So we, we look for explanations in the environment, you know, that we live in and the um, society we live in. But I did find something very fascinating about this concept of religion. I, I'm going to admit that I'm an atheist, although I grew up in Catholic Ireland in that very Catholic time. I'm now an atheist. But what was quite interesting as I traveled around communities is that religion had an incredible power to heal people, actually. You know, just obviously through, you know, the Nicaraguan people used spiritual methods to cure these young people of seizures. And really what they were doing was they were bringing people into the community, making them feel supported, and that made people better. And that was quite interesting to observe because, you know, medical methods don't work half as well as that. And that really had to kind of challenge you know, me in how I would incorporate how important beliefs are in in helping people to get better. So this may reveal perhaps a, a simplistic or, or misunderstanding on my part of, of mental illness uh, or depression. But when we talk about these sort of conditions um, that 
have biological symptoms, um, but but when we do scans and, and diagnostics, we see that you know that there isn't a mechanism for that. When it's something like depression or mental illness, how do we take those two things apart? Is it possible to become depressed or show symptoms of mental illness as a result of mass psychogenic illness? And and if so, how do we yeah. how do we unpack that? Well, of course, that's a big problem, isn't it? How do we even define what an illness is? And and therein lies a really big problem because, you know, um, depression, where's the line between feeling sad or feeling stressed by the life that you're living or having something impact on you socially to make you feel bad compared to having some sort of more fundamental cognitive problem that produces depression? I think we don't know where those lines lie and therefore it's very difficult to draw them. Um, and I think that basically modern society, Western medicine at the moment, is is very keen to call everything illness and to call everything disease and to put everything in a book with a label and a classification. Mm. We do that because it allows us to, you know, do research and to it helps insurance companies figure out how much things cost, etc. Um, but unfortunately, I think this increasing sort of tendency to call everything an illness or a disease, you know, pathologizes people and promotes chronic illness. Mm. And I would very much lean in the direction of saying that, you know, when we were talking a moment ago about sort of the effect of certain religious situations on producing seizures, you know, it's very easy then to call those seizures a medical illness. But the minute you do that, you create chronic illness. It's much better to describe things by something bad happened to me and then I felt sad and now what can I do to make myself feel better to my mind rather than calling something an illness which then becomes a label you're stuck with for the rest of your life and and I suppose uh, part of that is um, the responsibilities of those who run the narrative of of hysteric Mm -hmm. um uh, mass disease which which of course can only worsen the problem this book is filled with really interesting stories from um communities all around the world Uh, it's called the sleeping beauties and other stories of mystery illness it's by neurologist and author dr suzanne o'sullivan suzanne thanks so much for your time thanks for having me Interested in investing but don't know where to begin? A great place to start is Bank of Ireland's new webinar series, Invested. You can learn about investing with live webinars, guides and insights from industry experts. We know you've worked hard for your money and with our expert support, it can work harder for you. So don't rest it, invest it. Visit bankofireland.com invested. Bank of Ireland, begin. Terms and conditions apply. Bank of Ireland is a tied agent of New Ireland Assurance Company, PLC, trading as Bank of Ireland Life for Life Assurance and Pensions Business. Members of Bank of Ireland Group. Bank of Ireland Trading as Bank of Ireland Insurance and Investments is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.